In high school, Walt and I would often park up on a hill overlooking the Atlanta airport to watch the planes take off. We would lay on the hood of his cutlass and dream about getting on one of those planes for some kind of wild adventure. We would also play a game that we often played as children with my family, guessing the destinations of the planes and where the travelers were going and what they were going to do when they got there. Toward the end of one of these dates, Walt and I would tell each other one dream destination we had and some adventure we wanted to take later in life. Every now and then, we would also just fantasize about taking off to some faraway place and starting over a place where nobody knew us. We could become somebody new, better, or just different. 42 years later, we still sometimes talk about getting a remote cabin in the middle of nowhere next to a river or jumping on a boat and just taking off to some unknown land. I jokingly tell my own children, Jesus was not the Messiah in his own hometown. Sometimes to truly be who you're meant to be, you got to get gone. You got to start over where nobody knows you. There's something comforting in that. There's something great about getting lost. No map, no plan, no base. Sometimes for people, it's not a dream. It's a necessity. Starting over was the necessary path for Allison Foy. She didn't just crave a new town and new friends and a new job. She needed it to give her marriage a fighting chance. She and her husband decided on Wilmington, North Carolina, the small beach town that offered Allison what she wanted, tourists in the summer. But that small town full of creative, fun, and welcoming locals. Allison never got the chance to fully start over. She was on her way. She had new friends. She had a new place to live. She had a new job. But she went missing after having drinks with friends at a local bar to celebrate that new job. Two years later, Allison's remains were found in a ravine in the woods behind a Mexican restaurant off Carolina Beach Road. Shockingly, there was a second set of remains just feet from Allison. Allison Foy, 34, and Angela Noble Rothen, 42, disappeared a year apart. Allison in 2006 and Angela in 2007, and both remains were found April of 2008. Allison was last seen at Junction Pub on July 30th, 2006, and Angela was last seen June 10th, 2007, at her own birthday party. Allison's sister, Lisa Valentino, went to Wilmington immediately after hearing that her sister was missing. Once in Wilmington, Lisa made and put up missing persons posters. She hired a private investigator, and she got connected with the nonprofit, the Q Center for Missing Persons. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. And welcome to Zone 7. Thank you, and thank you for having me here. Well, I got to brag on you a little bit before we get started. Lisa is a warrior, y'all. She is all about the business. She is all about taking care 
of what needs to be taken care of on her sister's case. You can give her information. She will take it, and she will move immediately toward finding some type of solution, some type of evidence, some type of witness, some type of help. She is just extraordinary in that way. So she doesn't sit back a lot and take praise or compliments, but I just want to tell her publicly what I have told her privately. I admire the love that you have for your sister, that bond that is so evident, but also just your voice. I mean, honey, you've been your own detective, and I just appreciate what you've done for Allison. Well, I, I appreciate all of those kind words, and what else, what else could I do? I mean, you know, it is my sister. She's family, and, she, you know, she deserved, she deserved better. Tell us about Allison, y'all growing up, your family. Yeah, so we grew up in Syosset, Long Island, which is in New York. Allison was the youngest of four. There were six years between myself and my sister Allison. And she was just a spitfire. I mean, from the time she was little, uh, as she grew up, it, she enjoyed dancing. My father owned a dance studio, music and dance studio, and Allison participated in that. She was a student teacher. She became a regular teacher and she loved dance. She also, as she got older, coached gymnastics, which her, her oldest daughter, Courtney, today owns a, a gym. That kind of seeped into her blood and bones. But she was, Allison was the kind of person, even from when she was little, she was just very authentic and real. And a comment that I've always gotten about her is that even if you met her for the first time, it seemed as if you had known her for a long time. And she was just full of life, loved life. Her kids were everything to her. And I think she just wanted what we all want, right? To, to live a joy-filled, happy life. And she was trying her best to do that. But our childhood was typical, I, I think. I mean, of course, there were some hard times. My parents got divorced. We moved around a few times. But um, other, other than that, uh, I think we, we lived a pretty good, pretty good life. And then you got a call from your dad. Yes. So interestingly enough, prior to that phone call, Allison had come to visit me at my home in New Jersey with her youngest daughter, Jordan. And we had talked for the week that she was there about how she was trying to make changes in her life and things that she needed to do. And so as I, I sent her off, you know, I told her that I loved her and that I was positive that she was going to be able to make those changes. And then the last time I spoke to her was on my daughter's birthday. And my family and I were getting to go, getting ready to go away. And so we left for New Hampshire for 10 days. And on my ride home from New Hampshire, my father called me. And he said to me, I got a message on my voicemail that your sister Allison is missing. I mean, first of all, I think for anybody listening to you right this minute, the fact that your dad got a voicemail. I, oh it's terrible. God. It's terrible. I mean, how do you leave that message on someone's answering machine? I, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know, listening to it, what you would possibly need to process what you were hearing. Correct. And, and I think... One of the reasons, as I look back now, 16 years later, and knowing what I know about this case, is that I don't think they took it seriously. I think 
Wilmington PD at the time thought that this was kind of her MO and that she was going to turn up and that she just decided she needed a break from life. But immediately for me, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh my gosh, she's no longer alive. And um, that being said... Because you knew knew she wouldn't leave those babies. That is correct. I knew if my sister was going anywhere, two things would have happened. A, she would have called either myself or my father and said, I'm going away. Here's where I'm going to be. And B, she would have never left her children. Never, ever, ever. She would have taken them with her. And I think for law enforcement, especially younger male officers... There needs to be some understanding that I've got to listen to the people closest to this victim. For the scenario in your mind, you think, well, the husband didn't report her missing, so she probably just went off because they had a fight. But you're inferring something where somebody's telling you factually she would not leave her children. Right. And and I think that is a lesson well learned. And I hope Law enforcement, as you say, is listening if they aren't changing their mind. You have to listen to the family. You have to listen to those who know them best, and that's where you should start. Absolutely. So you get to Wilmington. Had you ever been there before? I had been there to visit my sister a year previously with my two children. However, my, my father and my brother John and my sister Michelle had not, and all of us went down there together. We literally got the phone call. We were all the way together. We dropped off our children who were all young at the time with my brother's wife. And we flew into Wilmington the very next day and were there for 10 days. And in that 10 days, you hired a private investigator and you got hooked up with the Q Center. Tell us about everything y'all were doing in those 10 days. Okay, so when we first flew into Wilmington, law enforcement (laughs) met us at the airport. They brought us back to the police station, and really, they said, look, this is what we think, and they interviewed us and spoke to us about my sister, and then pretty much they said, all right, here's some hotels you could stay at while you're here, and, you know, maybe you want to go hang some flyers. So we're like, all right, so that's what we did. We, We stopped at a Staples. We made up some flyers with some pictures of my sister, Allison, and we hit the streets ourselves. We were in some of the worst parts of Wilmington late at night that we probably never should have been in, but we didn't know better. And we are kind of on our own for the first couple of days. And my father at the hotel one afternoon, the young lady behind the desk said to him, oh, why are you guys here? And he said, well, my daughter is missing. And we're here, you know, trying to locate her, trying to find out what happened. And with that, we went out again and we came back to the hotel that night. And underneath our door was a a note from that young lady that said, I think this woman can help you. Her name is Monica Kaysen and she runs the Q Center for Missing Persons, which is located here in Wilmington, North Carolina. So we took that phone number. We called her. Within 30 minutes, she called us back. And the next morning, she was at our hotel, and we hit the streets running for the next 10 days with her. And she knew the lay of the land? Oh, yes. And law enforcement had contacted her, but just because 
of my sister's younger daughter, Jordan, and they called her to say, you know, can you recommend someone for this young girl? Her mom is missing, you know, someone who might be able to help the family out. And law enforcement never gave us uh, her information. But you're correct. She knew the lay of the land. She got us better posters printed up. We were using a terrible picture. And in fact, law enforcement was using a terrible picture. Um, and also she got us media. But we went downtown. We, we, we walked the streets early in the morning, late at night, spoke to people, handed out flyers, did interviews, and, and got her name out there in the press. And it's pretty incredible to me when you say you went to the seedier side that maybe you shouldn't even have been in. But a lot of times, those are the folks that have got their ear to the ground. They know information. They know the principal players of, you know, the usual suspects, so to speak. So to me, it was kind of brilliant that y'all went there. Yeah, that's, that's correct. And people didn't talk as much to us as they did to Monica when we got out there with her. They all seemed to know who she was. They were willing mm -hmm. to speak to her and give up any information that they had. So that was pretty much the first 10 days was, was that. And then when, when we had to leave, Monica recommended a private investigator for us because, to be honest with you, we weren't that confident in what law enforcement was doing. So, so that was a blessing as well. But I want to say that we were fortunate to have Monica with us because I think many families, if, if you're not involved with an organization like this, we would have went back home and just assumed kind of that law enforcement was, was going to do their job. And, and what I learned and what my family learned was that, you know, someone had to be the voice for Allison and someone had to keep on top of what was happening in her case. And someone had to keep in contact with law enforcement and, and be her, her advocate. As much as Monica was the advocate for Allison and my family, she taught me what I had to do for my sister. And that's imperative. I mean, you've got to keep that communication line open between the family and law enforcement. That's and correct. again, I think you've done that brilliantly. Well, I thank you. It wasn't easy in the beginning. And, sure. And, you know, if you look back over this story of my sister, we were not very happy with law enforcement in the beginning for multiple reasons. I will Well, let's get to one of them yeah, right okay, now. Okay, let's get to <laughs> Let's get to this one. And and nobody is Monday morning quarterback in here. This is factually what occurred. So some time has gone by and then y'all get some information that some remains have been found. How does that come about? Actually, believe it or not, before I, before I got the call from law enforcement officially, I had gotten a call from Mark Benson, the private investigator, and also from Monica herself, that something was, was going down and to prepare myself that I would probably be getting a phone call. Wow, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was, it was a Sunday morning. I was at work, and I just I got that phone call. So I, I got a I got a call from law enforcement, the detective on the case at the time, and he said to me, "You know, we've found some remains." He goes, "You know, we're not we're not sure whose they are. They're skeletal." He said, "But I'm also going to be sending you some photos of some of the things found at the site where they were." So I said, okay. Things like clothing, jewelry, that sort of thing? Correct. Clothing and jewelry, correct. Okay. And when I received those photos, 
I, I recognized the jewelry immediately and I knew it was my sister. You know, it's funny, for two years, I knew this was kind of what the truth was, but always in the back of your mind, you have hope that maybe it's going to be something else. But the minute I saw her ring, I knew that it was Allison's and I knew that it was my, my sister. Mm. And it was a matter then of waiting for DNA. Well, I think there's just no way to say to you how sorry I am still hearing this story. And I've heard it, you know, probably five times <laughs> over the years. But, you know, again, a photograph and then your worst nightmare is solidified and then you move on from there and again, Lisa, with you, that's what you did. You didn't just take this and say, well, the worst thing has happened and I'm just going to go back to New York and that's it. I mean, you went to work. Literally, you went to work. I, I did. This was, you know, this is 16 years of my, of my life and my family's life. You know, at the time my sister went missing, my son was six and my daughter was four. And I made multiple trips to Wilmington that my husband was here taking care of the kids so that I could do that. And, and I think, too, Cheryl, I, I just want to say one thing that I don't think people understand is that when somebody goes missing, it doesn't just tear apart that immediate family, but there are so many things that happen in your extended family as well. So it's hard. Oh, there's it's a hard. ripple effect. Correct. There's a ripple effect. You think every one of her teachers, every one of her childhood friends, mm -hmm. the co-workers. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of people. They're going to be affected immediately with this news. Correct. So then law enforcement hits you with another twist. <laughs> there's another set of remains feet from her. Right. You want to know how that actually happened? <laughs> Absolutely. So... All throughout this, I would be remiss if I didn't mention him either. My husband never really wanted me to travel down there by myself to Wilmington. And again, I had young children at the time, and so somebody needed to be here for them. So a friend of mine from high school and middle school, actually, one of my best friends who also was very good friends with Allison, often took that trip with me, Peter Roach. He had said to me after my sister's remains were found and that September, the DNA came back that it was indeed her. He said to me, you don't want those shipped back. He said, you and I are going to take a road trip and we're going to go pick up your sister. Oh. And so we drove down mm. together to pick up her remains. We met Monica at the crematory and we decided to go back to the site where she was recovered and just kind of pay our respects. And also we were going to do some press too. The three of us walked to the site into those woods and we're looking around and Peter says, oh my gosh, what is this? And Monica turns and she goes, don't touch anything. Those are, the, she knew immediately was human remains. We had to step out of the scene and she called law enforcement immediately. All right, Lisa, stop right there. I want everybody to understand what Lisa is saying to you. She goes back where her sister's remains were found to honor her, and they find human bones. 
Go ahead, Lisa. Uh, you just can't make this stuff up. No. <laughs> and this is just horrible. It, I mean, it, just you having to go through it. I'm sorry, but you having to go through that. Y'all finding human remains is yeah. beyond horrifying to me. Yeah, it is. It is. I don't still to this day. I, it just seems surreal. So, and the weird thing about it, it was, was that it almost looked as if they had been placed there. Mm -hmm. Like someone had come back, knew we were in town had, and had like, knew we might be going to the site. It, it was, it was just, it was just surreal and, and bizarre and horrifying as you said. And so law enforcement came and they re scoured the, the area. I guess it was a crime scene again. And they took those remains and tested them and they ended up being my sisters as well. All right, let's talk about suspects. Mm. And I'm going to be real clear right off the rip. There's not a suspect. There is only one suspect. Well, that's that's how agree? I feel. I agree 100%. <laughs> There's nobody else has been on anybody's radar, right? So your sister goes to Junction Pub to celebrate with friends about her new job that she got at the hotel, at the Holiday Inn, that she is thrilled with for the first time in her career. She's got her own office. I mean, she's proud of herself. She's got an office with her own desk and her own phone and a door she can shut. Yeah. She's running things. I mean, she's doing it. She's changing her life. Correct. And she goes out to celebrate that and tell us what happened. So... She left the the hotel that evening and went to meet a friend of hers and to have a glass of wine and, and to celebrate, as you just said. And at the time, I guess as the night was ending, she was going to go get in her car and her friend said to her, you know, you're not you're not going to drive. Let's let's call you a cab. So my sister said, OK, so really she did the right thing. And he motioned to the bartender and said, can we, get, can we get a cab here for my friend Allison? Bartender said, okay. Remember, this is all before Uber and Lyft and all of those things. And a couple minutes later, someone walks in the bar and says, did someone call a cab? Her friend says, yes, we did. Allison walks out, and that's the last she's ever seen. And the next day, her car is still in the parking lot. Nobody's heard from her. She's literally just vanished. Correct. You find out later on that this cab driver doesn't have the cab company's number on his taxi. So what, what we discover is at Junction Pub and Billiards at that time, they had a list of cab drivers and cell phone numbers. They wouldn't call. So this person that we're talking about drove for Port City Taxi. And he was a regular at the bar. And so if somebody needed a cab ride, if he wasn't working even, they would call him and he would come and make that extra money and pick up a fare. And that's exactly what happened that night. And what number would they call? His cell phone. His cell phone. His cell so phone. As a crime scene investigator working with detectives, that means when the detectives go to Port City Cab, there's no record of a pickup at Junction Pub. That is correct. 
So it looks like, oh, he had nothing to do with it. He was nowhere there. He didn't have a affair that night from there. That's correct. Okay. <laughs> so then you get word that there was another victim. So, so two things happen in the course of all that, right? The first is we get word there's another victim. We, we get a call with information that a woman named Sonia had been essentially picked up but kind of uh, attacked and almost raped and felt as if she was going to be killed. She was able to escape the cab that belonged to this only person of interest. Mm -hmm. And therein, her life at the time was very difficult and she didn't show up at the court date. And so he was able to plead to crimes of nature and, and was released. Where did he take her when he attacked her? <sighs> the same place where my sister was recovered, that backup road onto River Road, the, the, same, the same scenario. But then he was thirsty and wanted a Coke. There was a whole story that went along with that but how, and how she escaped and got free. But it was the same area. We, we then received the private investigator at the time, Mark Benson, um, used to do a radio show in Wilmington called Blue Line Radio. So Mark receives a phone call from this person of interest's wife, Susan, and she says, there's a lot of talk going on at the bar that my husband is responsible for the disappearance of Allison Foy. And Mark says, what? And therein, the investigation into her husband begins because now we have a name and now we have what just happened with Sonia. So now we have the name Timothy Iannone. Correct. And he's a cab driver. Correct. Okay. So now we're getting somewhere, Lisa. Right. Or we think we are. <laughs> I get involved and I get to come to Wilmington and I get in a car with you, with Dr. Dwayne Thompson and Holly Hughes, and you drive us out to the Mexican restaurant off Carolina Beach Road. Correct. And we walk into the woods where the ravine is. Yeah. And you're telling us all about it. You're telling us everything. Correct. And then I say to you, I'd like to see Iononi's house. And you said, okay. <laughs> so we get in the car and Dwayne's driving and you're in the passenger seat and I'm in the back seat. And I look over at a cell tower before we leave. And you take us left, right, turns, straight. You know, here we go on our trip. And everywhere you take us, I can see that cell tower. Correct. And when we get out in front of his house, as the crow flies, that cell tower is right through his backyard. He could walk straight to it. Correct. Thankfully, Sonia got away. Right. But he could go to that ravine anytime he wanted, just walking out his backyard and then through the woods, completely unseen. Right. Correct. Correct. And you're, you're right. <laughs> it's really that simple. It's really that simple. And I know Dr. Laura Petler always says, you know, it's up to the killer when they stop getting gratification from a crime. Well, he had two right there that he chose to put together 
he also took Sonia right there. Right. So obviously that was a dumping ground where he wanted to go to continue to get gratification from these crimes. I, I believe so. You know, and Monica, you can speak to her about this too. And she would tell you too, the way she does things, we knew that she was somewhere in that 3.5 mile radius from the bar. And in fact, Monica was just about to do a search in that area where those remains were found. She was waiting for land consent when, when they were recovered. But yeah, his house was right there. Everything was right there. The bar was right there. The house was right there. Everything. And then you got some more information. So one thing that Iannone would do, being a cab driver, is he would offer prostitutes free rides for their services. So we knew he was getting sexual favors for giving rides to people in town that were sex workers. So he had that suspect pool at his ready. He knew them. They knew him. So he could get somebody in his cab for the second time, fifth time, seventh time, and they would be unsuspecting what was fixing to happen. That's correct. Yeah. So you're starting to check some boxes off with this guy. Cab driver, cell phones, prostitutes, violence. So now he's got an arrest record. Right. Right. Now we've got some similar crimes. Right. And then you have a new witness come forward. All these years later, just suffice to say, my story with the Wilmington PD has gotten progressively better over the years. And once this detective, Leah Odom, was put on the case, things really started to change dramatically along with the information that they that they had. Lee is a bulldog. He's been pushing for this for as, as long as he's had the case. And eventually what comes up is a year ago, I get a phone call from the district attorney. They have arrested Timothy Iannone and he's in jail on a million dollar bond in the a 26 year old rape case where his DNA turned up and he is being charged with kidnapping and rape from a 26 year old case and that case that's unbelievable just, it is unbelievable that the case sat in in i guess the PD's I guess they have a room. I don't know, Cheryl, you would have better of un, no better untested kits. And I guess the government finally had some money. And in looking through these kits, this was one of the kits that was tested. Absolutely. Okay. So the original victim, she had the genius after the attack and after she was saved, because she ran literally to law enforcement, to go and get the rape kit. Um yes. And sometimes, you know, your systems at a police department change. So you may be on one computer system, but then when you move to another computer system, the old one just kind of goes away. So the new detective on a new case can't really go back and see that there's evidence somewhere. Okay. That's just part of it. It's just like if you have photographs saved on one laptop and you buy a new laptop, those photographs are not on that laptop. So... It's the same thing. Unless everything is transferred over somehow, you're not, as a new detective, going to know that there's maybe an untested rape kit sitting there. Got it. So that was 
to me, something brilliant. And I also want to kind of talk about the relationship that you've had with law enforcement and the district attorney. Okay. Because, you know, I've had a chance to speak to Lee Odom as well, and he's fabulous. He is. And he's open and he's willing to try new things. And, you know, he's doing all he knows to do. I'll tell you that. But it's kind of funny in our world you know, police officers tend to blame detectives and detectives blame prosecutors and prosecutors blame judges and judges blame juries anytime a case doesn't go, so to speak. But I want people to understand too, as a family, you have just been given horrible news. So you're not going to be in love with these people anyway. I mean, they've just told you something so life shattering that you probably don't even want to speak to them again. Right. You want somebody to come and help and save her and find her and make everything okay. And, you know, a lot of times it's like being at a doctor's office, right? right? So if the doctor says, oh, this looks really bad, you may not make it. And then the doctor comes in and says, hey, I was able to save you. That person is the greatest person ever. Right. 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 Yeah. But if they have bad news and say, well, you need to get your stuff in order, you know, <laughs> you're probably going to be a little... Oh, I hate this guy. I need a second opinion, right? But for you, here's what, again, I admire about you. You've had issues with not thinking they're working hard enough. They're not taking it seriously enough. I know with the district attorney, Ben David, it hasn't always been a love story. Um, <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> I've, had, I've had my own conversations with district attorney, Ben David, and I haven't always been complimentary you know, in talking with him. But again, I do believe that they're doing the best they can now with what they know now. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Y'all do not miss next week. We talk with Monica Kaysen, the founder of the Q Center for Missing Persons. She has been with Allison's family from the start. She searched for Allison with them, walked the streets with them, pleaded for witnesses to come forward, visited the crime scene when they found additional bones. Listen and find out why Monica trusts the streets.